Taking a paper clip, put it in the drawer. Taking a paper clip, it's gone in the drawer. It's a paper clip, paper clip. Yeah, I got a paper clip, I'm putting it in my drawer. A really big paper clip, it's in my drawer. I really, I really like big paper clips. Like big paper clips. What do we think of, of me having, can you see the, the prints? On the wall, it's not. It's not very clear. What are they? Yeah, they, they are front pages of the sports section of the NYT, uh, and one your is, front pages. Well, it's 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 a, very occasionally if I do something half decent, they send me a copy of the paper. Uh, so we've got Greenland. <laughs> we've got Ilkay Gundogan. Finch is just um, highlighting his own background. I'm just through. circling my England caps on the wall yeah, behind my yeah. head, Roy. But you, you carry on. It's important you tell us about these, these, these newspaper right, clippings. Well, you've, you've, no, carry on. No, honest, no, please. I'm interested. No, come on. Ilkay Gundogan. Carry on. I am interested. Please. Please. Angela, please. Please carry do, on. Do you think Chinch does this with, like, members of his family as well, that they kind of, kids get A-level results and he's just kind of, well... <laughs> Played for England seven times, so you feel free to track on. Tell me about three. About your three Bs. Uh, come on, tell, tell us seven. about. No, I am interested. No, I, I, no please. Oh, listening. come on! No, don't be like that. Feelings. You're not no, like that. Come on, come it's on. Tell us. Of, it's that time of the year when people are, are writing their Christmas letters, and they won't send them to Chinch because he just yeah. returns them with seven England caps <laughs> scrawled on the front. <laughs> Rory, come on, I want it's to hear, please. I feel bad signed, now. It's just a signed picture of him in an England shirt. I feel Mo bad now. Our listeners, our listeners want to know what's on the wall. Please, come on, tell us. In fact, a friend, in fact no, Chinch, you've hurt my feelings, but a friend of mine was, <laughs> is, is planning on writing a, um, a piece, I think this week actually, uh, about crossing, the lost art of crossing. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about crossing because Arsenal keep crossing but not scoring any goals. And, and he sent a message to our WhatsApp group saying, who was good at crossing pre-Beckham? And I racked my brains <laughs> for somebody who was good at crossing pre-Beckham. And there was a name on the tip of my tongue that I just couldn't, who, someone who I genuinely remember, like being brilliant at crossing. Left-footed, yeah. Left-footed. Yeah. And I just couldn't, like, decent career, like solid pro career, but not, not necessarily stellar. <clears throat> and it was, it was right there. And I just couldn't think of it. And then it came to me all of a sudden the person I was thinking of was Steve Guppy. Steve Guppy, <laughs> the Guppmeister. This is it was. Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, a comfortable pair of slippers, Rory Smith, a Ramones t-shirt, and Andy Hinchcliffe, a mankini. The food is a healthy <laughs> slice of humble pie, which should be eaten by Chinch every Christmas, and yet he scrolls on everybody's Christmas letter. Seven caps for England. Don't forget to tell about your favourite food places in the vicinity of your team's ground, by the way. People are starting to go back into grounds. Did you know that? Have you been watching the news? If Andy goes there for a game, he will definitely check it out because he has a calorie intake most of us only enjoy on Christmas Day. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is the email address. And, and the football is, Chinch, do you know what we're talking about uh today? Um, can I, to explain why I don't, I'm gonna. It, it's it's a pretty obvious comparison to make, but I equate this pod to the Scooby Doo mysteries. So when we start the pod and we all pile into the mystery machine, I clearly am Shaggy, who knows nothing about what's going on, hasn't got a brain, is here for comedic effect. So I'm sure it's a highbrow topic we're going to talk about today. I don't know what it is. You can decide amongst yourselves who is Freddie, who is Thelma. And who is Daphne? I have my own thoughts, but I'm definitely shaggy. So I clearly don't know what the hell we're talking about today. Which two were part of a couple? 
Fred, Fred, Fred and Daphne. Fred Daphne. and Daphne. Yeah. So that's well, there was, they weren't actually a couple, was. were they? They weren't actually a couple on Dave, screen, were they? Just to be clear, Shaggy and Scooby Doo were not <laughs> part of a couple. <laughs> I'm glad, we, I'm glad we clarified that. And Fred That's and Daphne, really important. Fred and Daphne were a couple in the movie um, and in real life of the actors who played them in the movie because it's Fred right? Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar. And frankly, as much as I do not find Steve to be attractive enough to be in a couple with me, if he was Sarah Michelle Gellar, I'd think twice. But also if he was Freddie Prince Jr., that man is gorgeous. <laughs> I'd also, also think twice. Scrappy-Doo was not Scooby-Doo's son, was he? No, he was, was, nephew. was, his, nephew. was his nephew. nephew. Yeah, so I was going to say, I thought Scrappy-Doo had a bit of a look of Shaggy about him, which is uh, a bit worrying. <laughs> what wasn't explained about that in, in either the cartoon or the film was that Scooby-Doo had actually killed his brother because dogs quite often don't recognise family. They, don't, they aren't aware of who their family is. So in, in, a, in a sort of in a game of fetch gone wrong, Scooby had killed his own flesh and blood and therefore felt guilty, so had to sort of indulge Scrappy-Doo, even though Scrappy-Doo so was very clearly what's Scooby-Doo's a brother twat. called? So what's Scooby-Doo's brother called? Neil. <laughs> Neil Doo? No, Scooby-Doo's all his first name. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. What's Scooby-Doo's surname? I don't know his surname. He's like Pele. But, uh, as you say, as you say, dogs do not recognise family, so his family exactly. name was of no consequence. Are you sure? Sure. Fair, Scooby-Doo I'm wouldn't have been his kennel, as, as Chint, well, no, Scooby-Doo would not have been his kennel club name. His kennel club name would have been something like Hector's real kennel club name. I'm pretty sure is Caliphate, as in really. I, yeah, I don't. To be <laughs> honest, <laughs> the time we got Hector, it didn't. It should have really occurred to us that that he was named after kind of what was at that point in 2016. I realise it doesn't occupy this this place in all Islamic law, but was kind of the Islamic superstate set up set up by ISIS. But that does appear to be what he's named after with the with the kennel club. You'll be pleased to know we are not today talking about Scooby-Doo or just, Islamic Caliphates. Let's just do ISIS. <laughs> let's do ISIS. We are talking instead, and you know, you could maybe get a through line between that and this. We are talking about allegiances. You all have them. We all have them. Well, Chinch doesn't, but the rest of us do. The difference, however, is that we have decided not to make it part of our public profile. And some journalists, and of course, understandably, a lot of pundits do. Furthermore, some are happy for that allegiance to be a selling point, a central part of their brand, while others are capable of both both making it public and also overcoming the potential pitfalls of doing so. So today we're talking about club allegiances in the media and whether they're public or private. That is all to come. That was a long walk to get to the end of that road. Uh, Just to make Chinch feel better, I had no idea that's what we were talking about. Really? Well, I'm glad you all are paying attention. To so we are we are Shaggy and Scooby threads. today, then? You and we I are Shaggy and Scooby locked in a romantic Absolutely. tryst. We just want to eat food. <laughs> we don't care about who killed whoever. <laughs> Uh, setpiecemenu at gmail.com is the email address for all complaints directed to this show. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Chris Etchingham writes this. Dear Ray, Egon, Peter, and Winston. You see, we could have gone to Ghostbusters. We went to Scooby-Doo instead. Obligatory excellent pod and you're all lovely people introduction. Listening to Rory and Chinch talk about people falling asleep or leaving early from important places on last week's pod reminds me of a guy that I used to work with. Now, I must have fallen asleep or left early from the pod because I can't remember that happening. But still, I trust Chris and his more attentive nature. I once worked with someone who told me his biggest regret in life was in November 1989 when he was working at a trade exhibition in West Berlin. After a hard day's hobnobbing and networking, he was exhausted. His colleagues heard rumours that something big was going to happen down by the wall and they were going to have a look and did he fancy joining them? He said he was way too tired and just fancied going back to the hotel for a bath and an early night. I've just realised it's about the uh, Great Wall of China. 
Um, he awoke the next day and went down to breakfast to see his work colleagues looking very tired, disheveled, but happy, having just come back to the hotel after being out all night. They then explained that not only did they go to the wall, but so did tens of thousands of others. And they watched as it came down and people made it through from the other side. It then dawned on my friend that whilst the rest of East and West Berlin had united in revolution, he had slept through the whole thing and has never forgiven himself since. And finally, with regard to your does genius have to be flawed debate, I think it was John Bon Jovi who sang, I need you like the poet needs the pain. Keep up the great work. The pods keep me company as I walk the dogs along the Cornish clifftops every Wednesday morning. That is from Chris. Walking a dog on a clifftop is incredibly stressful. So we, Kate and I like to go to Pembrokeshire, which is one of Britain's best, best kept secrets. And except if you're in Pembrokeshire or Welsh or one of the, the millions of people who goes there every year. But apart from that, it's very, very quiet. Um, and we did this lovely walk from Stackhouses with Hector when he was a puppy. So he was on, he was on his lead. And we saw a, a, a Sprinter Spaniel on this, this sheer cliff top that was a hun hundreds and hundreds of feet drop, just scampering around in that mad way that Spaniels do. And the owner was just sort of blasé about it. And I kept thinking that that dog may not have any depth perception. Like you are playing, and I've genuinely never, almost never been so stressed in my life. Like it was, it was a horrible experience to watch the dog sort of running to and fro, sniffing stuff on with the, just this sheer drop next to it. It was awful. So I, I commend Chris for having the, the nerves of steel necessary to walk a dog along a clifftop. And uh, wise words from John Bon Jovi. Where does, where does John sit in the pantheon of philosophical greats? Is he, is he in the top 10, would you say? He's above Sartre. Is he? But probably below Descartes. But Good. only, only yeah. because of his later work. Yeah. Not yeah. Descartes' later work. Bon Jovi's later So where work. does he Lanston. sit? In between Descartes and, and Sartre. Sartre. Yeah. Let me just write yeah. that Bon down. Jovi. Okay, we won't talk about Springsteen. I'll just get too complicated. Okay, I've got that. Thank you. Ahmed Youssef also has something to add to SPM 207 about Floor Genius. Hi, Rory, Steve, Hugh and Chinch. I was listening to your latest podcast in the aftermath of the death of Diego Maradona. It was mentioned that maybe Pelé didn't have the narrative behind him that Maradona did as a rebel or a sort of people's champion. I wanted to email just to say, I think Pelé's narrative as being recognised as one of the greatest players of all time is probably the most undersold and underestimated in world football. Why? Well, we need to think about Brazil. Not only was it one of the last countries to abolish slavery in 1888, just over 50 years until Pelé was born, but in the historic World Cup final in 1950, when Brazil were beaten by Uruguay, the scapegoat for that defeat was Mercia Barbosa, the black Brazilian goalkeeper. Of course, there were black Brazilian footballers who were able to find success in the national team, but how many of them were 17 years old when they led the national team to glory on the biggest stage of all, as Pelé did in 1958 and only eight years since their national embarrassment against Uruguay. Pelé is a representational figure of black excellence during a time when the FIFA president, Sir Stanley Rouse, advocated for apartheid or playing in the US right after the civil rights movement. The story of Pelé being the face of world football in a time when across the world to be black was seen as inconvenience or to be ashamed of is something I think we need to think about more thoroughly. Anyway, it's just something I thought I'd say because Pelé, without ever being overly political, did so much by just existing. Love the show. Keep up the great work. That's uh, from Ahmed. It's pretty true, actually. I, I, I always think with Pelé that we've um, we've dropped and he's so used to his persona po after his playing career, his post-playing persona, that we we kind of overlook a little bit what a significant player he was. And it's it's very easy for those of us. How old would you have to have been to have seen Pelé play in his pomp? Would you have to be probably 60 now, I guess? To, to, like, to, actually, to actually remember Pelé. I think because he's had such a long coda to his career, like he's had, a, he's had this second life where he's kind of just this, this almost ceremonial figure, Pelé. It's actually really easy for us to, um, 
to, to kind of write him off a little bit. And I actually wonder if that kind of kind of influences the debate over who is the greatest, whether it's easier now, given that the, com the conversation is dominated by people in their 30s, 40, 20s, 30s, 40s, and, and maybe even 50s, that change. I wonder if it, it if kind of what Pele was and what he meant is, is more easily overlooked because we're not, it doesn't resonate with us quite so much. Will Frampton is our current SPMPLPL champion and he has emailed very politely. He hasn't felt the need to directly remind me that he still hasn't received his prize. He says this instead, dear Steve, Rory, Hugh, and Chinch. Thank you for the wonderful pod. Your consistency throughout this year has provided genuine stability and been truly helpful through this uncertain time. As a musician, the question of genius versus flaws is one I come across regularly. And I was already halfway through mentally composing an email on the subject of Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, Keith Richards et al. When, of course, you dealt with that particular subject so wonderfully. I do think it is important to add, to add a point about the effect the romanticism of vices has on young players and the responsibility of highlighting to them, as Rory said, the fact that the flaw detracts from the genius. I see in the music world many young artists who feel that they need the vices or mental health conditions of a Cobain to be a genius and may even prioritize this over developing their craft. In football too, there seems to be a litany of young wonder kids who never fulfill their potential as their flaws get the better of them with seemingly little support put in place by their clubs. Yours, the current SBMPL champion, Will Frampton. P.S. Chinch will be pleased to know that I decided to bow out of the top and have not re-entered SPMPLPL this year. So surely the pathway to glory is now open to him. Why, why, would, you, why would you do that? You set the benchmark. Why would you bow out? You're not Eric Cantona. <laughs> Join up again, you... Yeah, lovely man. Abdullah Bashiti has got in touch uh, to talk about SPM 205, what makes a good game. And it's also an interesting response to the questions posed in, in the immediate responses you might remember from a couple of weeks ago about whether a comeback can indeed be one of the criteria to make a good game. Abdullah says this, Dear Hugh, Stephen, Rory and Chinch, greetings from Jordan. I discovered the pod back in April when the whole world was in lockdown and I haven't looked back since. Before I embark on the topic of my email, I would like to say a sincere thank you to you guys for the amazing content and debate you create on this show. So honestly, thanks. Kept that in. Might be surprised. I kept it in. Uh, now that we've gotten rid of the formalities, allow me to share my thoughts on what makes a good game. I agree with what you guys mentioned about the elements that contribute to making a good game, from intensity to drama to storylines. Also, I agree with Rory that having lots of goals in a game doesn't necessarily make it a good one. I'm a fan of both Napoli and Chelsea. I've watched Napoli live in a stadium only twice in my lifetime. Coincidentally, both were against Bologna. And despite both matches ending in victory for us, they had contrasting feelings. The first game was my first ever time going to watch a Serie A match in a stadium. And even though Maurizio Sarri's Napoli were having a goal fest as they thrashed Bologna 7-1 and played some very beautiful football. Somehow it felt less entertaining than the other match when Dries Mertens grabbed the winner for Carlo Ancelotti's side in the dying minutes of a 3-2 win. Whenever I'm asked what my most memorable Chelsea games are, my mind immediately goes to the 3-2 win against Liverpool in the Champions League semi-final in 2008, and also the nerve-wracking 4-4 draw against the same team in the quarterfinals a year later. Those games had everything, from Frank Lampard coming back after the passing of his mother to score a vital penalty against Pepe Reina, falling on his knees in tears and guiding us to our first Champions League final, to Fabio Aurelio's sneaky free kick against Petr Cech, to Alex blasting a thunderbolt into Reina's net, and eventually Didier Drogba and Lampard producing a final performance to lead us to victory. I know this email has been long, but bear with me. Just as in Rory's stories, there is a point 
and it is this. I discovered that the thing that appeals to me the most and the element that defines for me what makes a good game is having a comeback. Napoli were behind in that 3-2 game against Bologna, but eventually came back with a late winner. Chelsea and Liverpool in 08 were neck and neck until Chelsea managed to snatch qualification in extra time. And again, Chelsea and Liverpool in 09 when both teams produced great comebacks of their own. But thankfully, we managed to qualify in the end. Thank you again for all your brilliant work. And given that my family owns a hardware store in Jordan, I would be happy to send your way whichever set of Phillips screwdrivers or Allen keys you need in case one day one of you loses one of those important household components. Your friend, Abdullah Bashiti. Should we, um, instead, of, well, if we're going to do that and, and take, you know, screwdrivers from, from Abdullah, should we not, like, for no money, just become set piece menu sponsored by his family's hardware shop in Jordan? Uh, please let us know, Abdullah, if yeah, you have a little bit name. of spare cash. Um, no, no, they don't have to pay. It's fine. No, 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 no they, do, they absolutely do Hugh, have to pay. No, Hugh, nobody else is volunteering to pay. So <laughs> if, if if it can be just given away for free, like when Barcelona did UNICEF because they wanted it to be Qatar Airways and they realised the fans wouldn't swallow it if they did it immediately. Let's do that, but with a hardware store in Jordan. Definitely take the screwdrivers, but I think there's a very strong possibility I already have more Allen keys than Abdullah's family's hardware store does. But you know what you purchased- need, Steve? You need a a key fob to put your Allen keys on so you can attach them to your work belt. Because I bet your Allen keys are all loose, aren't they? Oh, They're just, just floating around in the That's the, the problem with Allen keys. You, you've got to have them on a ring binder thing so you can stick it on your belt. So then you're never without Allen's keys. You know, um, you know the hardware shop in Didsbury? Yes. Yes. That is also the most expensive shop in the world. There is a slight in. markup on some certain things. A slight point. markup. They'll charge you like 15 quid for a battery. It's extraordinary. But you support it as it's a local shop. I bought from there a set of Allen keys that comes in a neat kind of presentation box. It would actually make quite a nice gift. And I mean, obviously it was bought from the hardware shop in Didsbury, so it cost me £170. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's transformed my life. Chinch is completely right. You need, an, you need Allen key organisation. Yes, an Allen Key Swiss Army knife. That's what you need. That is the thing that that is one of the things that is missing from a Swiss Army knife, and actually explains a lot of the Swiss Army's travails in recent years. <laughs> well, they've not been able to build stuff successfully. You can't, you can't put a bed up. You can't fight a war, can you? Uh, finally, world domination has been uh, has floundered because of the lack of Allen keys. Finally, give me a way out. Finally, from John Wood, the buffalo who is not from Huntington Beach. This is John Wood writing. Hello, Mario, Luigi, Yoshi and Princess Peach. I have for the first time in a while managed to catch up with your podcast schedule. I am not listening to as many podcasts due to no commute for work. So yours is currently the only one I listen to. I hope that is praise enough for this email correspondence. John, yes, it is. Anyway, I wanted to say a few things based on your previous few episodes. Number one, Chinch. Having seen you in person at the live show, I can reassure you that the petrol station attendance assessment of your physique in last week's soccer story is very much incorrect. Myself and my friend Chris, yes, I am naming and shaming you, Chris, both agree that Chinch is hench. So please do not Ooh. feel self-conscious. Your work with Joao is not wasted. And hench is, go- hench is good, right? Yeah, hench is good. <laughs> yes, that's what, yeah, kids, good. that's what the kids call people like you, Chinch. Okay. Number two, Hugh, you are correct that bleeps are far funnier than actual swear words. See Mike Bassett's halftime team talk from the film of the same name. If you ever do a pod on the greatest football film, I would nominate this. Number three, the Fantasy Football League, SPM FPL, received good sign-up with 276 people joining. As of game week 10... Neil McNamara's Stronger Bell FC are top on 660 points. I recently got a text, by the way, from my brother-in-law, Paul, who, who showed that he was second. Uh, so um, well done, Paul. He is also currently, is Neil McNamara, second of all the players registered from the Falkland Islands. 
So we are in rarefied company. That is bad to be second in the Falkland Islands. This might this like minor niche podcast, and you're not even the top in the competition that not even all the listeners do in a place that is mainly sheep. That is that is. <laughs> but no, hang on, hang on. I think is he not second overall in fantasy Premier League in the Falkland Islands? My interpretation was that not only is he doing well in our ah, okay. our particular yeah. league. But if you took into account all players in the Falklands, he's second. That's probably not bad. But still, I mean, who's top? Dolly? Do you know what I mean? This is... <laughs> People can still join the SBM FBL uh, if they wish, says John. Uh, the game should count your score from game week one if you started then, but missed the league code uh, last time it was read out. Uh, join with the code OLE, randomly generated, he says. I did not choose Ollie. OLE585, that's the code. OLE585 if you'd like to join the SPM FPL. And finally, four. Although it is not a takeaway name, I would like to give a second shout out to my mate Chris for his creative FPL team name. Holding me long cock. It is rude, but unoffensive and relative to football, it is the perfect FPL name. And for some reason, not struck off by the league. Anyway, keep up the good work as always. That's from John. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Uh, so to our subject today, and it's one that does not throw up the almost weekly dilemma about how many words to capitalise in the episode upload form, because there is just one. It is this. Allegiances. Uh, here is an email from Ratnadip Das, who describes himself as a subscriber to the failing New York Times, largely because of Rory's writing. It's not failing because of that. He's just saying that's why he's subscribing. Although he does say in brackets, I do hope he forgives me for copy pasting large sections of his articles to non-subscriber friends. That's absolutely fine. Well, mm, this, this is broadcast. So no, I condemn that. They should all subscribe. <laughs> but yeah, fine. Also, it's advertising. Um, I just want to say that the failing New York Times may well be failing because of my writing that is we can't science uh, can't separate those two things do not let what chinch said to you earlier rory make you believe that it's slightly like, blocked completely it's rory 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 there. listen if you have a bad first touch you've got to put that out I've, listen i've had enough bad first touches in my life you have to put it behind you and for the next 89 minutes just produce your very very best i hope in, this podcast doesn't last another 89 minutes i've got things to do in fact that in the grand scheme of things there could be it could be claimed that getting a story about soccer in Greenland on the front page of the New York Times sports section is a greater achievement than playing in a nil-nil draw between England and Saudi Arabia. Well, I don't, I don't, that's, I don't even think that's, that's massively up for debate, Stephen. Don't I think you made a fool of yourself debate. there. Uh, Ratnadip continues. Andy Hinchcliffe and co. Greetings from Birmingham yes! via Kolkata. I hope you are all well and healthy. I write in response to something which happened earlier in the season during the coverage of Manchester United's home defeat to Spurs. Patrice Evra's half-time reaction which was impassioned due to his strong affinity for the club. It was somewhat welcome to see something genuine in a TV environment where not many things feel that way. However, as he himself admitted, it is not ideal to have a strong emotional bond to a team when you're ostensibly there to provide objective analysis. This, along with the frequency of having Gary Neville, another ex-United player, commentate on their games, leads to my question. Would it be healthier for football discourse if pundits or co-commentators had no relationship with the clubs they are covering, or is that simply not practical? Surely if people chosen to analyse the match were done so because of some sense of objective merit instead of repute in the game, it would elevate the conversation. While I appreciate that Neville and Jamie Carragher uh, have done a lot in terms of raising the bar for football analysis on telly, just those two, nobody else. 
I do think that when he is covering United, he stops being a reasonably objective pundit and becomes yet another addition to the class of ex-United player lamenting how the club has gone, but not pointing fingers at those arguably most responsible. And that is frankly tedious, if only because only a number, a select number of clubs get that sort of presence. Thank you for the show. And I always love hearing Hugh's dulcet tones trying to navigate the intro into the episode proper. And he's very good at that, despite the hurdles he faces. Yes, today again. Thank you. That is from Ratnadip. So Ratnadip's email highlights both the pros and cons of a pundit wearing their allegiances on their sleeve. He enjoys the emotional engagement, but understands the subsequent lack of objectivity reduces the chances of the kind of analysis the audience has come to appreciate, particularly in recent years. And it's not just a debate about pundits. James Toseland tweeted set piece many recently to say this. Can I ask why you guys don't reveal who you support or more broadly, why some journalists make their team clear and others don't? Is it to do with what media opportunities you get? How are you perceived? I assume it's easier to say so it doesn't slip out. What's particularly fascinating is that the response to those questions was succinctly tweeted in reply using 233 characters and we're about to make it last half an hour. Uh, so if you're pushed for time, just check your Twitter app. If you're not and you'd like the long form, here we go. Does a pundit's allegiances prevent them from providing objective analysis or do we want them to feel like fans feel. Also, do you care if you know who a journalist supports and why do some decide that that is a risk not worth taking or that impartiality is their chosen priority? Today's show is all about allegiances among those in the media and whether they should be public or private. Well, I, as, I think I've talked about this before. As a, as a kid, I was never really a fan. I, I didn't support a club and go and watch a team. So maybe I, I'm not as invested as a lot of the, the guys that, that, that played and then went into the world of punditry. You know, if you talk about, say, Gary Neville compared to me, it's completely different how he probably feels about Man United, about how I feel about the teams that... Because I didn't support a team when I was a kid, so I didn't have that strong allegiance. I really... The teams that I played for, I cared about deeply. City, Everton, Sheffield Wednesday, England, maybe not so much. But I, I really did care about that. And, but I came at it, I think, from a different angle. So then when I went into maybe the media... I didn't have that maybe kind of really strong allegiance to one club or all the clubs that I played because I didn't support them maybe as a kid. And surely that's where maybe this all comes from. It's not necessarily who you play for. And that then comes out when you, you do your punditry work. I've always felt when I work is that I generally just see two teams and try to commentate as best I can on them. But strangely, I went, I, I've done Merseyside derbies, Everton, Liverpool, and I play for Everton. I've done Manchester derbies, play for City, I've done City United. But then the only game that I was actually not allowed to cover was Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday, because they felt of my allegiances would, would lean towards Sheffield Wednesday. When I'd done Manchester derbies and Merseyside derbies, I always found it strange why they would look at that game or certain producers would think, well, we don't want you on that game just in case the fans are critical and you, you play for Wednesday. And I didn't bring up the fact I play for Everton and, and City and done games, derbies for those two teams. So that seems strange, but it is, I think it is something that is levelled at pundits, well, you're only saying that because you support the team. Or I've had criticism when I've covered Man City and, and they've won four or five nil. And I said, well, by City standards, they played reasonably well today, but they weren't at their best. City fans saying, hang on a minute, you play for the club. How can you say that? We were All I'm trying to do is give my honest opinion on what I've seen. But my allegiances really don't come into it. I, they never do influence what I, what I say because I don't think I was, or I'm invested as much as a lot of the pundits that are out there now presumably because of, again, how they felt about the teams they supported as a kid. Is that the main reason I think, like I do, and other pundits feel the way that they do? What, what interests me most is that... So I think we can accept that Chinch is, a, is an exception in lots and lots of ways, that he didn't 
he didn't particularly support a club as a kid, whereas most most pundits, ex-players, will have supported somebody as a child. And and one of the things I always find quite funny about about ex-players is is the number of teams they'll claim to support. So it's it's always all of their their former teams and whoever they 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 supported as a kid and kind of their mates clubs or the you know the, the ones who, who their friends are currently managing or whatever so you'll speak to some some former players who are now in the media and there'll be a bit a, a big long list of clubs that they that they have an allegiance to and you sort of think well it's must get very confusing for you that you support so many different teams and I think that's unavoidable if you don't have former players in the media which we should do it's unavoidable that they will have some allegiances to teams that they supported or that they played for and that's fine what I find, the two trends that I find really interesting, and Chinch may be able to, to offer some insight into this. One is, is that sense now that it's actively encouraged that Gary Neville should do a Man United game and Cara should do a Liverpool game and Steve McManaman should do a Liverpool game. When I would have thought that they'd be, the broadcasters would be looking at it and thinking, well, look, we, we need to have someone who's, who's neutral, who, who, who is impartial in this particular squabble. And I do wonder if the reason they don't do that is because they've looked at the viewing figures and they've thought the vast majority of people watching this Manchester United game will be Manchester United fans. So if we have Gary Neville on, then he, what he says will resonate with them more, which may be in the case of the Sheffield Derby change. Mm. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe Sky looked at their figures and think, well, you know, we're going to get a million people for this game. And half, well, you know, some of them will be neutral, but half the, the invested ones will be United and half will be Wednesday. So we don't want to alienate either of them yeah whereas if it's man united against burnley you'll get a million people and nine hundred thousand of them will be man united fans mm -hmm. and the other thing is i think there is an increased tendency now for for players not only not to or ex players not only not to conceal who they support but to actively advertise it and again i don't know whether that's to do with with trying to capture an audience rather than it, than to kind of offer that like authentic fan voice because i wonder if it's actually a, a sort of signifier that um the broadcasters have worked out that that fans don't actually want as much as they say as, as much as we think they want neutral impartial commentary and as much as they probably should want neutral impartial commentary and as much as they say they want neutral impartial commentary what they actually want is someone who is neutral and impartial in exactly the way that they feel yeah yeah, neutral and impartial in the way that I, the viewer, am neutral yeah. and impartial. And, and what you said, Rory, is absolutely spot on. Manchester United and Liverpool in particular, Arsenal to an extent, are the big TV draws in terms of the, the eyes on screen that they more or less guarantee if that team is on the television. And therefore, yes, of course, production decisions are made on the basis of how can we best represent the majority of the audience on screen which is why Manchester United are playing, you know, Gary Neville is absolutely key. It's why if Liverpool are playing, so too Jamie Carragher or Steve McManaman. And, and if Arsenal are playing, then, you know, Ian Wright is, is the player that you'd absolutely want to have on the sofa because they are the, they are the figurehead that best represents the fan base who, who make up a, a majority of the audience. And it's much as if you are a fan of a, of a mid-table team, if it's a, a Liverpool against... Southampton or a Manchester United against Fulham or, or what have you, it, the, the, the opposition is not bringing in the same level of audience, it's much more niche. So there isn't perhaps the sense that you need the balance on screen in terms of the coverage, because ultimately you've got to, you've got to pander to what's going to galvanise your audience. And, and that's why, that's why the, 
there is such a, a desire to have former Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal players in the media and why with the, the growth of, say, Tottenham and Manchester City, for example, that finding former players that represent those clubs is, is so key to the broadcasters as well. And it's not just how they're necessarily performing on the pitch on that day in that game. It's the, the stories, the issues around Manchester United, Arsenal, Tottenham. Liverpool to a degree with all the injuries that they're having and how Jurgen Klopp's reacted to all that. So again, I think you're absolutely right. This is why they say, but, but when I think I started in this, this business, no one actually said to me, you've got to be completely neutral. I just naturally, that's, that's something that I thought, well, that is, is my job here to see two teams. But yeah, I think that's kind of drifted because again, they've got these big personalities and the clubs, the big clubs have such huge talking points that they want it known that we're going to get somebody in who is closely associated with this club or supports this club and can talk with authority about this club as well. So, yeah, I think that's why it goes down that road. Because I've always got a bit kind of frustrated thinking we've got Man United, Liverpool. And if you're a good co-commentator, you think, well, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love an opportunity to co-commentate on that game, but it will probably never happen because not just the game is, I could commentate on the game, but the issues around those two clubs away from the game, you need a Roy Keane or a, or a Gary Neville or a, a Steve McManaman to talk about Liverpool and Man United. They would feel that I can't really do that, even though I'll have done my homework and would be able to talk about it. My voice isn't, doesn't have the authority maybe of, of, of Roy Keane and, and Gary Neville and Steve McManaman. Just to pick up on a couple of other things that, that have also been discussed so far. Firstly, in terms of what Chinch was talking about, having covered Merseyside and Manchester derbies, but not the Sheffield derby. Well, Merseyside and Manchester derbies are local rivalries, but they're played out on the national stage. And a Sheffield derby, and I feel I can say this because I've worked in Sheffield and I've covered both clubs, is a more parochial derby. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot harder. You have to be able to strike with the coverage of that contest absolutely the right balance. If you're going to have chinch, you've got to have a Sheffield United pundit of equal standing to bring the balance in the studio or on the gantry. It's very hard to find a pundit of equal well, standing, let alone a Sheffield United pundit of ex- equal standing. Exactly. Very, very difficult. I, I think I think those supporters of, of City or United or Liverpool or Everton are used to those games being played out on the national stage. They're used, they're used to the, the national spotlight that shines on those games. So therefore, are probably a bit more understanding if the balance isn't exactly even because it, because it becomes a a contest of which there is normally more at stake than just local pride. Whereas that doesn't quite extend to a Sheffield derby where, where the local bragging rights are absolutely critical. Just so we're all clear, I think I've uh, just to talk through a couple of names of people who are the Sheffield United <laughs> equivalent of Andy Hinchcliffe. I'm going to suggest John Pemberton and Glyn Hodges. Right. Okay. Is that, is that really? about right? Do we think? Yeah, I think that's about right. Actually, I interestingly, I don't think so. But anyway, it's up to you. I mean, the Franz, Franz Carr played for Sheffield United. Did, did we know that? Yeah, but yeah, have you ever heard him speak? No, and he was also a better player than you, Chinch. But I played directly <laughs> against him, and it, it, it was a big. When we actually played, we faced off right winger against left back, and he basically didn't get a look in. People then did realise, and that's eventually what, what led to me playing international football. So, yeah, talk, talk a bit more about Franz Kahn, how great he is. What about if we were to Yeah, join... oh, no, 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 let's carry on about Franz Kahn. Are you going to somebody else, are you? Because I've completely blown your, your theory about Franz Kahn out of the water. Carry Wait, on. What about, what about Dave Tuttle? Dave could, Tuttle? Could Dave Tuttle have rivaled you, do you think? You tell me. Obviously, it's, it's exactly this kind of content which led to Sky saying, Chinch, you better not do the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We couldn't get Tuttle, so we can't have Hinchcliffe. We couldn't just bring Chris Kamara in to say unbelievable in response to any point that Chinch made. So it was better to go down a neutral avenue. 
do we think there was was there a specific point? Because I think what Chinch says about that the presumption the presumption of impartiality is really interesting. That I th I think to an older generation of viewers, if you think about the the co-commentators that we grew up with, people like David Pleat, I I don't remember in in games, and maybe it's just that I wasn't alive to it, but I don't remember listening to like David Pleat co-commentate and thinking he has a vested interest in one of these teams, and it feels to me as though until relatively recently, within the last 20 years, certainly, a broadcaster would have taken the view, well, we can't have him doing that game because he will be perceived as biased. And yet by the time that, that Jamie Carragher started, and look, Carragher's a really good pundit and he does some great stuff on Monday Night Football, the, the, it, it strikes me that he was, he certainly wasn't told that you have to tone down the Liverpool stuff and he certainly wasn't told you have to pretend to be neutral it strikes me that if anything, he'd have been told, look, feel free, have a crack, just just go and be Jamie Tarrant, a Liverpool icon. And that that is a really interesting and quite important shift in, in the way that broadcast in the way that broadcasters think about fans and the way they see tribalism as being a bigger sell than than almost in the actual football itself, if you see what I mean. Yeah, but, but that's not the job. That's surely because Carragher came along, do you not think? And they but, felt but, how we could use him. It's not necessarily we need someone to fill this job, so we'll find someone. Is it not, is it not him that came first? They thought, right, we're going to use what he naturally has. But you can only do Jamie Carragher in the context of Gary Neville because Gary Neville, mm. when he took the job, that, that wasn't the environment. And there was a genuine effort to make Gary Neville both supportive of Manchester United, yeah. but in just as much... Um, a, a pundit that people eventually came to trust because of his strong analysis work and his ability to do a good job as a pundit, both particularly in the studio and eventually as a co-commentator. And then the co-commentary started to add to it and he started to do Manchester United games and they started to kind of rebuild that in when Jamie Carragher arrived. But when it was Gary before Jamie, there was a concerted effort to make Gary Neville less partisan Mm -hmm. more yeah. of a of an objective uh, analyst so that they could bring non-Manchester United fans on board so that non-Manchester United fans, even those fans of Liverpool and Manchester City who are predisposed to not liking Gary Neville, eventually would see that his yeah. work meant that his his uh, analysis was good enough to be able to trust him. Thereafter, having built the foundations, you can then build on the partisanship and add in Jamie Car Carragher for a bit of balance so that you've got a Liverpool and a Manchester United. Yeah, that's Hugh's absolutely right. Gary Neville came along with credibility with Manchester United fans. That already was a, a very top asset in terms of him getting work in the media. The fact that he was able to express himself, to offer the insight that he was, and, to, and because of what he'd achieved in the game, win over fans of clubs who were predisposed to dislike him, then gave him credibility with a wider audience. And that set a new standard, really, in terms of... of the punditry requirements for for those at sort of that elite level in terms of the big games on Sky, but it also presented in some ways a problem because you then had a Manchester United version of that, and in terms of the other big TV draw, you needed a Liverpool equivalent, and that's why Jamie Carragher was in such high demand from the media when he retired as a player because he was very quickly identified as being the player or the now former player, who could fulfil the Gary Neville role from a Liverpool point of view, because someone like Steven Gerrard's intentions were to go into coaching and management, which has, has materialised. They needed, they needed a, a Neville equivalent that had played for Liverpool. 
And that's why the two of them now are, are right at the top of the game. And the reason why Gary Neville could become more Manchester United, which is what many expected him to be from day one, but he wasn't. The reason that he was able to do that was because of the foundations of being an, uh, you know, an objective analyst at the beginning of wiping away to a certain degree those red colours so that he could become more Manchester United partisan. But then he was only allowed to fully fledge or fl fully flourish as a Manchester United supporter in the commentary booth because Jamie Carragher came along and provided that balance. If those two things hadn't have happened, Gary Neville would be as he was in day one. He would have had to have kept a much, much straighter path. Exactly. He would have had to be much more with the edges completely ripped away and to be very, very much more sensible in that, as you said, Rory, traditional sense of how a co-commentator or a studio pundit objective analysis had to be. And just sorry, just to finish this train of thought is that they have now got themselves to the point where they have, transformed from being representatives of their clubs to the top pundits where supporters of other clubs accept their presence on screen mm. as being the top people. So almost by attaching Neville or Carragher to the game, Sky are elevating it further. So even if it's, say, Manchester City versus Arsenal, it feels like, well, that needs to be a Neville or a Carragher game because they're the top guys, even though they haven't got an association with either club. And in fact, in Gary Neville's case, he played for one of the team's great rivals. My, my dad, who I take as kind of the, the avatar of like purity when it comes to partiality, he just, he, he basically has no tolerance for it at all. He, he it like the tribal aspects of football genuinely detracts from the spectacle for him. Got really, and, but he, he is a Leicester fan at heart, um, although he denies it. He got really annoyed, I would say, in about 2015 when Gary Lineker started trailing Leicester games on Match of the Day with what he considered to be part evidence of partiality towards Leicester. He, he thought that, and look, my dad's in his mid-70s, he's redolent of an older generation, but he thought that was not, he was adamant that was not what Lineker was meant to be doing, that his, that by, by Gary Lineker becoming a very soft, very kind of, inoffensive and sort of I just happen to be a Leicester fan kind of Leicester fan he's not kind of a cheerleader particularly but it's also the club it's also that it's important which well, club it is yeah so there's there's two things that I think lead us maybe a little bit into the journalistic side of it is that yeah absolutely Gary Lineker could get away with that because that is the ultimate neutral position the host of match of the day is the ultimate neutral position he got away with that because it was Leicester I think if Gary Lineker had been a Manchester United or a Liverpool fan or maybe an Arsenal fan and then possibly the other three members of the big six, I think that would not have been possible. I think there is a much higher tolerance for everyone involved in the kind of football industry landscape to be, to be partisan if they don't support a club that lots of people have strong opinions on. Lots of people have strong opinions for or against Liverpool or Manchester United. Lots of people have strong opinions on Arsenal. Slightly fewer people, but still lots of people have strong opinions on Chelsea, Man City and Spurs. I always think it's interesting that amongst journalists, it, it doesn't seem to be a problem for Newcastle or Villa or to an extent like Everton fans, maybe, maybe less so for Everton, but certainly for teams like Newcastle, Villa, to kind of reveal themselves as being, I, you know, I'm a journalist, but I'm also a Newcastle fan. I'm also a Villa fan. That seems to be okay. And lower down the leagues, it's actively encouraged. If you're a Leighton Orient fan, just tell everyone constantly that you're a Leighton Orient fan, that really isn't a problem. It seems to burnish your credentials, which I wonder is one of those things that we just accept. But I wonder if it's 
if that is a sign that actually fans as a, as a whole don't believe in the concept of, in, of impartiality that, and that there, is a, that there is a point at which they want journalists to prove that they are fans because that means that they, they kind of have more authenticity. And the example, I shouldn't really quote this as an example because he's a mate, one of my best mates, and he's no longer a journalist, but the Times of London used to have a reporter called Tony Barrett, who is now working at Liverpool as a kind of community liaison position and doing an excellent job. And he's a lovely man, is Tony. Tony is one of the scousest people in the world. He is one of the, one of, I mean, like grade A, pure, uncut scouts. And Tony never made any secret of the fact that he was a Liverpool fan. And it always intrigued me on Twitter how fans of clubs that were rivals to Liverpool, who ought to have been busy accusing Tony Barrett of bias, were, were effectively neutered by the fact that he was like, well, yeah, I'm a Liverpool fan. It never, he never kind of tried to hide it. There was Most journalists, I think, still feel some sort of in, impulse, some sort of compulsion to, to hide their allegiance because... As Michael Calvin, the um, who now is an author but worked for a long time for the Telegraph and the Mirror and stuff, but Michael Calvin always told me that his first editor at the Telegraph called him into his office on his first day as a sports reporter and said, "I've only got one piece of advice, and that is, do not let me know the colour of your politics or the colour of your team." And that was that was the bar to which sports journalists were held. Now, the, the Telegraph has very much given given up on not showing the colour of its politics. And there has been a, I think there's been a move within football journalism as well to, to allow people to show the colours of their team. But I wonder whether that's actually to do with the fact that in fans' eyes, that makes you more authentic. And the, the pretense of, impa of complete impartiality, which I personally think is crucial and like genuinely vitally important to being able to do your job properly, fans believe that to be false because they cannot envisage how that could be true. So is that a bit of an anachronism then? Uh, uh, something that's left over from a, a previous era of journalism that, that as journalists we are expected to protect our allegiances for the benefit of the audience or, or for the readers because it does seem to be that it's either one thing or the other you either as as collectively we do keep our allegiances close to our chest for professional reasons or on the other side of the scale, you have people, as you just described, Tony Barrett, who almost use their allegiance as part of their journalistic or, or on-air persona, because there's plenty of radio and television reporters as well who make no secret of the team they follow, and they seem to build it into the way that they do their job. And, and as you've just described, Rory, almost by nailing their colours firmly to the mast, they end up facing fewer accusations of bias because it's already out there so you don't have a situation where on, on social media for example people are, are second guessing who you might support they're, 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 they're not having to read between the, the lines mm. to try and draw their own conclusions that the, the conspiracy has taken all out of it and, and there is a sense that maybe that's a, a healthier way to go because people seem to want to be able to accuse you of bias when they don't actually have any concrete evidence of, of who you follow, it's almost to try and bring you out of your shell to reveal yourself. If I, if I throw enough accusations of bias at this person, they will break mm. and that will be a success for me because they have revealed who they support and we can all move on then to the next target. 
But is, is it the case to say broadcasters or the media now wanting allegiances to be made known? But surely you stand and fall by the content of what you do. So you can say, yes, I'm a, I'm a Liverpool fan. I'm going to make it plain I'm a Liverpool fan. But if you're if you're writing or if you're co-commentating, if you're doing punditry work, and that work about any team is excellent and you're absolutely doing the job, is that what wins over United fans listening to someone that they know or, or reading something that a Liverpool fan, a staunch Liverpool fan has written? Isn't it all about the work that you do? Is that why Gary Neville, again, he was able to convince people who aren't United fans because of the work, the quality work that he did. So then it became, well, we know you're a United fan, you're passionate about them, we like that. But actually, the value in you is, is you speak so well and you, you do explain things. Of, of any team that you watch, it's all the content of the work that you do which convinces people. So whether you say you're a, a supporter of a team or not, surely, hopefully, you are judged on the, the quality of the work that you do. I think within certain constituencies, yes, that there, that there is for the, like the vast majority of like the football public, if you do, do good stuff, you'll be all right. It doesn't really matter whether it's not really relevant. I think it's maybe more complicated for journalists than it is for co-commentators and pundits, just because journalists will, by their very nature, have to write critical things of lots of different teams. And to me, if you're known as a fan of Team A and you criticise Team B... But as long as that work is well, well thought out, well founded, no, well written, no, it doesn't no, work. Doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. Okay. It doesn't. It, there's a point it, for some people. It will, and we shouldn't. You know, we shouldn't tar all fans with the same brush, obviously. But I think within, if you were to criticise Team B, say you say you're a Villa fan and you criticise Birmingham because Birmingham badly run and they're a basket case, there will be a portion of the readers of that story who will say, well, you're only saying that because you're a Villa fan, because football has that family thing where you're allowed to criticise your own family, but you're not allowed, other people from outside aren't allowed to criticise your family. And I think that that's actually quite a bad example because I think most Birmingham fans would recognise <laughs> the truth of what a Villa fan was saying if they were criticising the way Birmingham's run, but anyway. And I think, I think to me, and I know what Steve means, I do, want, I do wonder if it's a bit of an anachronism, whether, whether there is an element of it's easier just to say, this is who I support, you can, you can judge me on my work on kind of the, the content that it contains. And if you decide that, that it's all wrong because I, I support Team X, then, then that's fine. It doesn't matter. But equally, I think the crucial thing is that you should... Well, there's two things. One is that I don't actually think that who you support is quite as relevant as a lot of people think it is in the way that you work. It's, it, it isn't, it's amazing how often... Like, it's amazing, like, relatively speaking, I support quite a big team, but like in terms of the percentage of my work that I do where that big team is mentioned, it's probably, I don't know, it's a, it's a relatively small fraction. It's not, it's not kind of 95% of my work is on this club. And certainly when I, when I write about them, it's, I'm not writing about them as I support them. I'm writing about them because they happen to be relevant to whatever I'm writing about. So, or relevant in the general kind of thrust of the season. So to me, it's always been a much more, it, revealing who you support, it can only be destructive because it can only kind of, give people reason not to listen to you. It doesn't lend weight. And the exception to that is if you support a smaller club, then it lends authority and authenticity to the fact that you are a true football fan. As we've talked about before, there is this hierarchy of fans so that if you're a Colchester fan, fans of Manchester United will be like, well, you know, they're a Colchester fan, so they must be a proper football fan. They get it. Yeah, they get it. They, you know, And I think that there are journalists who use that that allegiance to a smaller team and to be honest that smaller team can be anybody outside the, the, the top six yeah. of the Premier League 
to to say I am I am of this world. You have you can respect me because I am I am genuine. Whereas if you if you are someone who supports one of the top six, it's a much more fraught thing to do because it is assumed that you are writing from the perspective of a fan of that club. And and that's the most important thing to say about the the, the top six make up fans of the top six make up the huge majority of those whether in public or in private who will make those judgments upon you if you are to reveal your allegiance so if you are a fan of a team outside of the top six you may well be and from from one element of what you just said you get the authenticity but you can also be patronized and being marginalized as being somebody who don't who will, who will not be able to contribute to the debate that i am having with this group of people which is me and probably five other clubs or me and at the very least one or two other clubs and that those are the loudest voices those are the ones that may well judge you should you decide to reveal your allegiance and also there's a disconnect between those people who consider their identity to be completely interwoven with who they support. And that is how they represent themselves online, potentially. That's how they represent themselves within their family structures. It's how they represent themselves within their friends and their debates and everything. Every conversation they have might be tied to which football club they support and therefore, by extension, which club other people support that they might be having a discussion about. I would suggest that as journalists, that is always going to be, unless you are working for that club, you are displaced one move. You always consider your identity to be that of a journalist first. And, yeah. and Andy is one yeah. of those uh, exceptions to the rule that the pundit now might be somebody who is intrinsically linked to a club and therefore that is still their identity. But but Chinch, and whether it's anachronism or whether it's just something because of, of, of how you grew up, Chinch, that mm-hmm. genuinely you are one removed from that you are not, your identity is not wedded to the team you support. And for us, and Rory said that you write sometimes about your team, Stephen and I will talk about our team on the on the radio or on the television. It may well be of relevance to us in our daily lives, but we don't think that when we are talking about them because mm. that is removed from what we are doing. We are being a journalist and we are talking about, and it sounds incredibly pompous. And I do apologize for the fact that there'll be loads of people saying, oh, shut up, you don't, you don't think like that because they don't have that same... intrinsic reaction to the football world that we do our priority is to genuinely do the best job that we can and to not be judged on it based on who we support because we just genuinely don't think it is of relevance when i've had this discussion with colleagues something that comes up regularly and has become a bit of a mantra for football commentators in particular is this idea that you are confusing your bias as a viewer as a listener with what you perceive to be my bias because actually, and this is really twee, and I'm sorry, but it's like a bit of a protective shield for some of the people in my industry, is that on a match day, our team is the people that we are working with. It's the director, it's the producers, it's your co-commentator. It's the vast number of people that, that pull their resources together to make a, a live broadcast happen. So even if you happen to be covering the team that you support, and it happens very rarely, then do you know what? The thing that you are most worried about is doing a good job for yourself and for the people that you are working with. That is your number one responsibility for those 90 minutes. The success or otherwise of the team that either you do support or that people perceive that you support is utterly irrelevant. And even if you are covering the team that you follow, the chances are that you're more likely to be biased against them because you are... You are overprotecting, you're overcompensating 
So you're likely to see it through the, the reverse prism to the ones that people might perceive. And, and that is something that is definitely true. And the final thing on that point is it was Guy Mowbray who was the first person, match of the day's top commentator, Guy Mowbray, who was the first person I heard say this. And it's really true. The football commentators and referees share an awful lot in common in terms of the perception that they've had a good game if you don't notice them. And that is why, is one of the main reasons I think football commentators in particular protect their allegiances because that enables you, gives you a a greater chance of, of having that good game because people haven't noticed that you're there i'm gonna i'm gonna shock everybody and say i genuinely care more about myself than i do about my team and that frankly is what guys that's not to us. That's and, not and, your, and your wife and all of us <laughs> and your but, so that, but that that actually applies to journalists as well so i've i've seen my team in in what could be argued as the biggest game in club football Sherpa Van Trophies final. The Sherpa Van Trophies final. The um the Europa League round of sixteen and <laughs> the um and literally on the final whistle, my thought my thought is not. I'm so happy they've done this. It is. Shit, I have to write twelve hundred words. That is that is genuinely your thought process at the absolute pinnacle of either joy or despair. Is what's happening over there is for me to document, not for me to enjoy. And I think this isn't meant to sound arrogant or presumptuous or dismissive of fans, but unless, I can't even want to say this, it's very hard, I think, for someone who's not been in that situation to understand what that situation is like. Yeah. And it, it, is, it is actually, to be fair, it's like a cause of a bit of regret afterwards. Like the day after, you think, you know, I didn't really enjoy that as much as I should have done. And conversely, I suppose you think, well, actually, that didn't hurt as much as it should have done because, because I wasn't really paying attention to the, to the emotionality of what this team has, this club has done. I was thinking, well, I have to make there be words on this page. Otherwise I'm going to get in real trouble with Andy. That is, that is my, my main thought in that moment is about, is about Andy, not about <laughs> what's happened. Like is when, how can I make sure Andy's fine? You know, but, seen... that, but that's the point about the, cl- you, you have a clarity of thought, apart from obsessing about Andy Das, you have a clarity of thought that hopefully allows you to do that job in the best way possible, as opposed to being clouded potentially by yeah. a distraction that your emotions may provide you if you let them overwhelm you. That's, that's, I'm, I'm, so you I'm, have to, I'm you, very you, nervous you... about the fact that we're all sounding incredibly pompous at the moment, but you, I'm trying to it's, articulate it's the gen, genuine, the most, the most emotional moment I've had at a football game during my career for work neither of the teams were the team that I supported it was because it was a massive story and you were really excited to be there like I said yeah. we're just self-obsessed that's all we care about no but it's you, you're doing a job and I, I think that's that that is the crucial thing and the, the other thing that, that's important to say is that when you work within football you tend to have lots of different biases because there's lots of people that you know who you want to see do well so there was like I and before we fell out obviously I I was I, I liked Roberto Martinez a lot. I still like him now. He doesn't like me. But I really want, I don't support Everton, but I really wanted his Everton team to do well because I really like him. And there's players that, you know, like Il- Ilkay. I really, I, my main thing with Man City is I want Ilkay to play well. I don't, I don't really, the result doesn't make, doesn't make a huge amount of difference to me. But if Ilkay's played well, you know, a bad Man City game for me is that Ilkay's conceded a penalty. That's that's a bad Man City game for me. You have these personal biases that are everywhere. But you never write them. You, you, they, you never write them. Yeah, they, because they never does, fall into your words. But I think the one the one time that you have to be really, that you have to really check it actually. Steve's right. If you if you're working on the team you support, you are much more likely to be, your bias will manifest in in, in hyper criticism as as is true of all fans. So you, you will be much harsher to the team you support. 
I think when you're criticizing the teams that are your direct rivals, when deep down you find their struggles quite funny, what you tend to do is second guess yourself so much that you don't want to be, you, you're sat there thinking, I don't want to be thinking this about Southampton because I love Portsmouth. I want to make sure that I actually think this about Southampton, that you, you interrogate your thought processes so much that if anything, you're probably a little bit too kind to them. So I think if there is a way that, that bias manifests itself in the media, certainly from the written media's point of view, it's that the team, the people who are writing about the teams they support are too harsh on the teams they support and possibly too nice about the teams that they actively, you know, in theory dislike. But I do wonder whether that's actually quite valuable because it means that, you know, so I'm not a Man United fan, but I wonder if maybe I or can... Or are you? <laughs> maybe I, maybe it's all, really well, it's all really well disguised. But I wonder if, if that gives you a perspective that is naturally a little bit more kind of a little bit broader, a little bit more kind of thought through than just this is a disaster for Manchester United or this is the greatest thing in the world. So, you know, I, I don't really see the kind of Solskjaer's the saviour or Solskjaer's a disaster. My, you know, I kind of think he's fine because to be honest, that's how he's doing. He's doing fine. And I wonder if that that is maybe what is anachronistic more than anything else is not having that immediate emotional response to a, to a stimulus and being able to think, actually, do you know what this... This, actually, this defeat doesn't really matter that much. This isn't a disaster. Yeah, just to sum up the, the pomposity, it, it comes back to that thing of you don't confuse your bias with the, with, with the perception of bias from the person that's on the screen or on the microphone because most of it, I know Chinch is the exception, but most of us that work in the media, our love of football comes from our support of one club in particular, but our, our ability to separate us, ourselves from that when doing our job is one of the critical things that enables us to do that job. But we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be where we were without the love of the game that, that grew from the acorn of a support for a team. But we wouldn't be able to stay there if we were enabled ourselves to be anchored solely to that team in the way that we follow football. And, and the media market matters as well. If you are working like Steve and I have previously in Manchester Radio, to be one or the other is seen clearly as damaging if you are going to try and cover both. Now, it just so happens that Stephen and I aren't a supporter of Manchester United or Manchester City. So keeping our allegiances quiet was both good in the fact that you try and do it for impartiality reasons, but it was also bad because it meant that everything you said about one team could be accused of bias by the other. And I, I, I covered and had to cover both clubs. And fans of Manchester United and Manchester City did not like the fact that I covered both clubs and in doing so was accused of supporting the other team yeah. by Manchester United or Manchester City fans. If you work in a, an environment where the media market is just one team, like you said, Rory earlier, Newcastle, or if you live in Ipswich or you live in a place where genuinely there is just one team in that media market then you are in a much, much safer position because you don't have a coexisting local rival that will always be picking you up on every little thing you say and therefore judging you. And as has been the case for Manchester City fans in particular, who thought I was a Manchester United fan for a decade, even though I'd covered their club for a decade, it, it, it can happen to the befuddlement of most of us, I'd imagine. Because I only covered United when I, I worked the Manchester patch and I used to get letters written in crayon from furious Manchester City fans who accused me of some of basically being the example of everything that was awful about Manchester United supporters and that coming across continuously in my coverage 
even though Manche Manchester United are very much not the team I support. They were just the team that I was being paid to cover at that time. I suppose it's in, in a way, if I'm commentating on City or Sheffield Wednesday or Everton, maybe it's understandable in inverted commas that the that, that fans of those clubs that I play for are going to be listening more intently to things that I say. But I was genuinely shocked recently. I did a game, a Brentford QPR game. So clearly no vested interest at all. Never played for those two clubs. I've commentated on them many times. I've got a friend who's a QPR fan. And after the game, Brentford won the game. And after the game, I got a text from the QPR fan saying it was clear, blatantly clear from the commentary that you wanted Brentford to win. Now, I then realised, actually, I, I, I kind of in your head, you listen back to, to what you've said. And that really offends my professional integrity because absolutely I did not commentate on that game wanting Brentford to win. I just commentated on the game that's in front of me. But again, someone clearly either is, is hearing something that isn't being said, but has, has made their mind up that not just me, but the commentator and the co-commentator, we both wanted Brentford to win. And it was clear from the comments that we made during the course of the game. So again, you, you think you, you simply can't win because that is genuinely not how I go into any game. It is not what happened in that game. So I don't know what fans hear. I, it, it, just, it just really did surprise me because she's never come up with a comment like that before. She's normally very balanced in and saying, well, I maybe didn't agree with that, but that was absolutely right. This was, it was all wrong and you clearly wanted Brentford to win the game. And I found that kind of a, a bigger blow to my professional integrity than, than if I was commentating on my own. So I'd probably stand my ground a little bit, but I didn't know where to go with that. I just sent back a thumbs up and a, a smiley emoji because <laughs> I thought I'm not getting into this because I, I want to go to town on you here because that is, is clearly not how I work, never have worked and never will. But it really did affect me for some time. All, all I do when I'm watching an Andy Hinchcliffe commentary is, is hope that at the end of it, Andy Hinchcliffe is the winner. And that's what I hope. And he always is. Really he always really. tends to be. Maybe that's why it, the amount of people that say to me, oh, what are you doing these days? And I say, I've been working for Sky. No, no, I think that. No, no, no. I think that is a positive because maybe people, they must have heard me do something. But because I'm hopefully doing my job well and saying what is that or, or showing them something they can't see, is they think, well, that guy's doing if I say something that's really anti their club or something that clearly isn't true, maybe they'd say, who the hell is that guy? I want to find out who's getting it so wrong. So maybe because I do get it right, I kind of go under the radar. But so many people say, so what are you doing these days? And I, and I say, I'm a, I'm a painter and decorator because it's not much. But I've been working for Sky for 10 years. Oh, have you? Yes, I have. I've been brilliant. And my name's Don Goodman. It oh. is uh, uh, time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is an Andy Hitchcliffe tells the tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. Well, this was, this was something I was hoping to keep firmly under the radar. It, it's about, strangely, it's about darts. Now, is, dart, is darts a sport? Is yes. It technically, it, it's, why, why is it a sport? It's a sport. But it's just what? a sport. It's, it's a pub game. Yeah. It's a sport. It's like yes. shop hypony. Move, well, we on, move this... on from framing the terms of your story. Get on with it. Yeah. Okay, so so Sky, there's this apparently darts, a big darts thing is happening. So <laughs> weirdly, all the football pundits were asked to do this. Apparently there's, there's this song, a planet funk song called Chase the Sun, which is like the, again, must be the theme tune for the Nobody, for nobody the knows darts. the title. Everybody knows the song. So, well, I didn't know either. So they said to us, what you need to do is we're going to get you to, as if you're, well, you're at Bournemouth. So you're at a game, you're kind of looking over your notes and you start humming this, this tune, which I'd, I, I said I'd heard of, but I, I'm 51. I clearly hadn't heard of it. So I actually 
I'm sure I got it wrong. And everybody was there saying, that's not the right tune. I don't know what song you're doing. But I thought, well, clearly I've done it so badly. It's not going to make the edit. There's no way this is going to go into this, this preview of this big darts competition or whatever you call it coming along. Uh, but it did. And Steve, I think... Steve, you did, you did, why are you shaking your head? You okay, did see, I made the edit, didn't I? How, it, it, how, how good I, or bad was well, it? Well, I assume it, it, it was its debut appearance, I'm assuming, ahead oh. of Monday Night Football last night. Oh. Does that get a big audience? I think they went for the big audience. Was it obvious it was me? It's pretty difficult to confuse you with anybody else, Chinch. Oh, how, how long was I on? I couldn't, I can't bring my, I can't bring my, so loads of people since have, have sent me links to this and I just can't bring my, because I know how bad it's going to be and I can't believe they actually left it in. Your entire appearance is available on our Twitter feed. Oh, no, it, no, no, it's no. It's a good, it's a decent two second chunk of you humming along with the darts theme tune. Ladies and gentlemen, for the purposes of those who don't know what music is played every time that Sky Sports coverage of the World Darts Championship, a significant event, goes to a break following the conclusion of a set. Would you like to, Chinch, give us your rendition now of the full song? No, I still, I've done it and I still don't know... There's a dum-de-dum-de-dee, the da-de-da-de-da and a bum-bum-bum in there, but I, I don't know what, in what order the da-de-da's, the dee-dee-dees and the dum-de-dums come to. I don't know, because I don't know. I, I, if you give me a song I'd have known, I could have done, but I thought I'd done such a bad job of it. And people saying, you've not actually hummed. I, I, I think, it, again, it's just my charisma, I think, that got me in that, that made the edit. It wasn't actually what I was doing or the sounds that were coming out of my mouth. It's just the fact they wanted me on screen. I was going to say that two second chunk is, is what I've heard Nikki calls chinch. <laughs> On that bombshell. Well, let's go to break with this music. The half second on Zoom delay that uh, allows you to never sing a song together is proven once again. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy and Stephen. It's your for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. You must know that. Don't, don't, football. So Wigan, I think, play it after a goal as well. Just, when was the last time I went to Wigan? <laughs> I've never heard it. I've never, I have no you. idea there you what go, any Rory, of you are talking you. about. Yeah, Chase no the Sun. Idea Planet Funk, there. Chase the Sun. Darts, though. Who, who's the big, now. who's the big darts person's people? Who are, uh, who, <laughs> Eric Brist, is he still going? Bobby is Jockey George. Wilson alive? Is Jockey Wilson still alive? They're all quite big, Chinch. You're going yeah. to have to narrow it down. Yeah, I, I just, a sport. What? How does it? How is that a sport? I, I just get confused. Talking of anachronisms, can we uh, remember that uh, you're you're trying to describe both the size and indeed the personalities of 1980s darts? Was it Andy Fordham? He was a darts player, wasn't he? And he said that he it's definitely a sport, and he's an athlete because he wears trainers. <laughs> oh well, there you go then. Says it all. There you go. What more do you want? <laughs>